couple of Sundays ago, I mentioned to you that my first awareness of a shadow was stepping into an apartment of a single mom with two boys, very similar to my background, and, um, and, and where I was frozen in the memory of all that flooded back. But in thinking about it, it occurred to me the other day that that was really not true. That was not my first revelation of a shadow in my life. And I, I hadn't thought of it in all these years just because there had been such victory in it, but I'd like to share it with you in case it's you. I was in my 20s, in my work life, going to work like you guys do. I was a skeptic at the time, I would say even cynic. I just had this belief that if you, you just douse every positive statement, every positive plan, every entrepreneurial spirit, that if you if you were questioned everything, that if you believe the worst, this was my motto, and I did say it out loud frequently, if you believe the worst, you will never be disappointed. That's, that was my thinking. And I totally believed every bit of it. We had a short-term uh, contractor accountant at my employer. They had brought on a Harvard guy, very smart, very intuitive, and one day, uh, I was giving him one of my cynical, skeptical responses to something. And he looked at me simply, and he said, Greg, did your father make a lot of promises to you that he did not keep? Like, wow. Holy Dr. Phil. <laughs> like, like, man, you had no idea how many there were. All of them broken, all of them. And once I was aware of that part of my life, that shadow, as a newer believer, I was able to meet it with some truth, and I did it quickly. I didn't want to be a cynic or a skeptic. I knew that wasn't God's plan. I just knew it, even as a young believer. I knew that it, I didn't know the word shadow and I didn't know stronghold, but I knew it could be tamed and put in its place. But I can't defeat an enemy I can't see, and you cannot defeat an enemy that you cannot see. And this one, by a, a guy who's a contractor, not a believer, he, he showed me an enemy, and I could see it, and I could deal with it. And so I had a new truth. My new truth was all things are possible in Christ Jesus. My new truth was that in my economy, five loaves plus two fishes equals seven people getting fed. In God's economy, I knew that five plus two equals 5,000 plus. I believed at that moment, I said, I, I am not a failure, and it's okay if I do because it's always a win for God. He wastes nothing. Everything has a purpose. And over time, and it was rather quickly, I traded my cynicism for an expectation that God wanted the best for me, that God wanted the best, and that even the things that were packaged looking like the worst were actually for his best. And it grew into an expectation that in my life that's carried forward and gotten stronger and stronger, that I just expect good things from God all the time, even if they're packaged to look bad. I expect it to be good. And the result of that is today, most would tell you that know me, I am an optimist. I'd see the best. 
I see that life is filled with great possibilities as long as it's being fueled and driven and led by God. And so with that, I just want to tell you how important it is to recognize your shadows and your strongholds, that you got, you got to know what it looks like and you got to put a name on it, whatever that is for you. So for you, you were told growing up that somebody told you you're ugly and you believed it. Somebody, your abuser conveyed that you're dirty and no good. Your schoolmates labeled you because of a, some physical imperfection that you sought to hide your whole life. Jail gave you a number and that's all that you were. Dad gave you the boot. Your overbearing parents conveyed to you that you're inept and inadequate and incompetent. Your under-involved parents conveyed you a lack of worth and value in your life. And so I look and when I see in the church and I stand as somebody just like you who's got baggage in my life, stuff that's holding me back from being all that God has called me to be. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of believers and spotting shadows and strongholds in the life. Introverts that are introverts on the outside that are actually extroverts on the inside. They're an extrovert trying to get out. Hiding behind shadows of past failures, parental prophecies of no good, ridicule. They're found in the corners, they're in the back walls, they're along the side aisles. They're there hiding. And I would say for this, as we take on the next part of the series, that God is beckoning you to come out, come forward, and be healed. He wants you restored. That is his heart for you. You will not get restored 100% in this life. But he beckons you to come to him, taking all this. I know that many of you are fearful of letting people down, and that's holding you back. You're fearful of being exposed for who you think you really are and that people will reject you if they find out. You're fearful of being hurt again. You're exhausted by faking it. Everything in life for you is an exhaustion because you're tired of faking it and you're always wondering, am I clever enough? Am I liked? Am I wanted? That's what's going on up here. I am not a therapist. Don't practice therapy and I'm not doing that here. I'm just a guy like you who's had a lot of experience and took a lot of years to really come to the place where enough was enough and to get some of these things under order. And my heart for you is that you don't have to wait 40 years to find your shadow and to find your strongholds and kill them, demolish them once and for all. Unstuck is about getting free from those things that are hindering us from an abundant spiritual life. It's removing that which is blocking the peace that God wants you to experience and the joy and the love that he wants to pour into you. And it's all being held back. And so just as a refresher, I just want to go over for those joining us new or like me, you have a short memory, just to refresh what a shadow is. A shadow is a past set of emotions or wounds or traumas, hurts and patterns that shape your thinking and behavior moving forward. Shadows don't go away, but you can disarm them and take away their power. A stronghold is a lie that has a stronghold of you and that opposes the truth of God. It's a lie that has a stronghold of you and opposes the truth of God. 
And the good news is, as we said last couple weeks, that a strongholds can be demolished or meant to be demolished along with their demonic enablers. And that's what we're going to do. And the weapon we use is the truth of God. As we've said, it is like a double-edged sword. It's sharp on both sides, and it will divide the soul from the spirit. It will cut away at things, and your truth will set you free, as the rip scripture says. Now, we all have different personalities and temperaments, right? We're just built different, so some things aren't shadows and strongholds. Don't go looking for things that aren't there. It's just maybe how the Lord made you. Some people are more detail-oriented. Some are more big picture. Some of you are more sensitive than other people, and some of you are just, I don't know, sociopathic, whatever you want to use it. That's how sensitive people label you. Some of you... uh, maybe deeper issues and you've got chemical imbalances and you need treatment and and all that we can't determine here you just that's required professional help that's well beyond the bounds here for us here is we're we're looking at what does god say and how his truth can set you free from those things that are freeable so this is what it's going to take and how and what we are going to do to get free This is what we're going to do to get free. We will demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We're going to demolish arguments that the enemy has brought for why you are stuck, to keep you stuck. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, the full understanding of his glory, of his love, a full knowing of his character. And this is how we're going to do it. We will do it because we will take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are going to learn to start taking our thoughts captive and to the obedience of Christ. And there's a battle that rages in every person. God has designed it this way. He has made this unique thing. There's a battle in you that rages between something called the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. I know that's getting deep. I just call it brainiology because it's beyond me. So in your brainiology, study of brains, God has designed your brain. In the brain, there are two components that we're going to look at right now. In the front of your brain is the prefrontal cortex. That's logic. But information and response and reaction, when you're being reacting to something, it doesn't start in the front. It starts in the back. It starts in the amygdala. Let's call her Amy, okay? So Amy is your emotions. Gets all upset. That's the one that instantly gets all jittery. You find out that you're not invited to the party. And Amy gets the answer. Right away, Amy goes into high drive. I can't believe I didn't get invited to the party. I thought I would be invited. Who got invited to that party that I'm not invited to? And you start going down the list, and you see if you can get into the evite. And you're finding out, and you're going, and you're, and you're going crazy. And you say, they can't do that to me, and you're hurt. And for a day or two, you nurse that wound, and then you want to get even and rejection. And you say, I'm going to have a party You'll see, and I'm not inviting so-and-so to my party. All works. Passive-aggressive kicks into gear. Here's the battle. 
Amy amygdala does not control you. God has designed a different way. God gave you two components of your brain. This is what God is talking about, the truth setting you free. You have a bouncer, a muscular bouncer in your brain that deals and keeps amygdala under control. The trouble for a lot of us is that Amy has been allowed to run wild. She is not doing her, she is not uh, controlled in any way. We need the bouncer, we need to enact prefrontal cortex, we'll call him Mr. Cortex, to go deal with Amy and to settle her down. And the way that prefrontal cortex does that for Christian is with the truth. I didn't get invited to the party. Ah! That's amygdala. Cortex steps up and says, hey, you know you're totally accepted and the beloved, right? You know that there's probably a good reason you weren't invited. It's not personal. You know that so-and-so has a small house, and so they can only take so many people. You know that you were invited there last month for another occasion, and maybe they can't have you for this occasion. You know that in the beloved that he loves you dearly, and that your acceptance as a person and your value as a person is nothing connected to what party you get invited to or don't get invited to, that's prefrontal. It stands there and does the job. If you let amygdala run wild, amygdala will take that and burn emotional scars and ruts in your brain, and it will just feed your reduction, and it will just get worse and worse and worse. We got to get amygdala under control. Now, let me speak from the heart. This will not be easy in some areas of your life. Some areas will be easier than others. This is going to take work. If as a Christian, if we're coming here and think that we don't have to work the brain and put cortex in action, then we will miss it greatly. We will not get free. We will not experience the life and the peace and the joy that God has intended for you. Strongholds don't topple, and I know this is going to break some theology here, but you just have to hear it. Strongholds are not toppled by the three magic Christian words. They're not in Jesus' name. Sure, demons don't like that name and they'll flee. But strongholds are going to take some truth to go along with in Jesus' name. It's what precedes in Jesus' name that makes all the difference that's going on in prefrontal. In Jesus' name, is not. it's going to take faith plus truth plus war equals victory. Faith plus truth plus war equals victory. So we're going to get free. We're going to get, deal with this battle. Our bouncer, our, our, our bouncer, our cortex has gotten a little flabby. Would you admit that? It's gotten a little flabby. It's out of shape. It doesn't run as fast as it used to. It's really kind of semi-retirement at the moment. And we're going to take cortex out of retirement and put him back in the job. Now, if you want your cortex to be female, that's totally up to you. You pick your gender, okay? D, they, them, him, her, he, she, I don't care. It's a cortex. <laughs> Throwing in my little side there. That's how I vent, by the way. So one person's uh, work, we'll call her Martha. Martha spreads a false rumor about this fine believer at their job. It's a totally false rumor. Immediately, when that person finds out that this rumor is going around and some nasty stuff about their character, 
Amygdala jumped in and said, I've lost all my friends. I'm never going to have another friend again. Amygdala is, I'm going to lose my job and my children are going to starve. Amygdala ponders slashing her tires. Amygdala ponders going and getting a drink like that would fix it. Amygdala can't sleep, won't let you sleep. Cortex jumps in and says, God, thank you for this situation. I choose to trust you. Help me to have mercy on Martha the way that you have had mercy on me over and over again. That's what cortex does. It takes the word of God, the truth, and it destroys the lie. It puts amygdala emotions in control and it settles them down. And we're going to need to get good and strong at this if we are going to break the strongholds. It's going to require choosing the way God thinks and thinking his thoughts. You will choose to think one of two ways. You will either think God thoughts or sinful thoughts, thoughts that don't line up with his truth, thoughts that oppose his truth. And so he says in his word in Romans 8, 5, I want you to hear this. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, listen, think about sinful things. Their mind is focused on things that are not lining up with the truth of God. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. In other words, things that are God's thoughts. In other words, His Word. That's the choice that we make every single day, every moment of the day, and the thoughts that we think. Now, only one of that line of thinking is going to lead to life and peace for you. And so Paul continues in Romans 8, 6. He says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, spiritual death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So the question to you is, which one do you want? You want a spiritual death that's going to lock you in the shadows and strongholds for the rest of your life that's going to keep you backed in the corners, dealing with rejection, letting Amy go crazy in your brain, sleepless nights, or do you want to enjoy life and peace? And so the question is, do my thoughts please God or are they his thoughts or are they my thoughts? That's the question to ask yourself. So if you really want to change your life, if you really want to change your life, you have to change your thinking. I know that sounds basic. I know it sounds easy. You can write it down. But it takes work. There is an effort in working out your salvation, not working for it, working it out through this. He says in his word in Psalm 119.11, most of you know it, I have hidden your word in my heart. I have hidden your truth in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. That I might be consumed with your thoughts which will overflow into love and your behavior. I have hidden them in me. I've taken your truth in me so that they will set me free. Your new thinking will change personal life. New thinking will change your family, your career, your business if you have one. But it's more than that. I mean, Tony Robbins can help you do all that. He can. But new updated God's thoughts, which are well superior to positive thinking, God thinking changes every area of your life. Every area. God's thoughts will move you forward into new territory. It will take you out of the safety zone and playing it safe and will have you doing things you thought you could never do. 
It will change cycles in your life where you were stuck and you said, I just wish I could do, I wish my life would be. And you read a book, you, you hear a, some speaker on positive thinking and you say, yes, I want to do that. And you try to do it, you just fail at it over and over because you're stuck. God thoughts will move you forward, will take you out of safety and move you into areas where you'll experience great exhilaration for him. Francis Chan has a brilliant illustration on this. I'll share it with you. I've probably shared it before. It's, he uses, a, he goes on stage and he puts a gymnastic balance beam. Have you all seen this? Puts a balance beam on the floor. He said, the Christian is like this. He said, we're, we're, we're like the gymnast who's got the best equipment and the best training and the best coaching and is powered with great skill. And it's, it's the person who puts the balance beam you know, a few inches from the floor so as not to take a risk rather than putting it up high. Lays their body down across the beam and then wraps it and holds it. And then when this life is all done, they expect to get up and go, yes! I did the dismount. Aren't I good? And expecting God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You played the safest life you could possibly play. But didn't produce fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. So playing it safe. Playing it safe will not experience the exhilaration of victory nor exhilaration of experiencing God's great pleasure work through you. I'm not saying he won't be pleased with you. I'm not suggesting that you won't be with him in eternity. I'm just suggesting that while you're in this life, you will not, there's so many things you will not experience in the glory of knowing him more deeply. A good many Christians are held back, as you know. Some of you have already realized this now by your confessions of self-sabotage, rejection, and abandonment. And you don't know it, and you, you see the signs, but you didn't know what they went to. You've seen it in people close to you. Rebecca had a great relationship with her boss. He had hired her and trained her. He was like a father figure to her, and, and she felt safe, and she felt secure. They'd worked together 10 years, and then one day he came, and he told her confidentially, he goes, listen, I'm about to give notice. I'm, I'm changing companies. Rebecca instantly became angry, irate, emotionally irreconcilable. She wouldn't talk to him, wouldn't talk to anybody. She cried uncontrollably. She felt betrayed. Her faith had taught her to forgive, but she just couldn't do it. Rebecca's dad left her when she was young, left the family. It was a very tragic time, built and burned into her mind and her heart since she was a young girl. Well-meaning church people did not really permit her to express herself and what she was going through. She felt that she had to be perfect, and she had to be the perfect little girl and perfect little Christian and make it through all this. She, had to, and she, she just couldn't cope with the, under the stress of it, so she changed her thinking. She developed, instead, close and dependent relationships with other people, believing that somehow that that would do it. Her first and only love cheated on her. Rebecca is dealing with abandonment. She's handling rejection. She never brought Jesus into her pain. She never appropriated the truth in her life. She believed the lie that said, when people leave me and let me down, it's because I'm unloved and I'm unlovable. I must feel loved or I can't go on. The truth is, 
for Rebecca. God will never leave you. He is never turning his back on you. He will never love you more than he does right now, and he will never love you less, Rebecca. She will confess that, God, you are my father. And while I miss the one that I had, you are truly my father, and you know every pain and hurt in my life. She will confess to him that he has always been there for her, always at her side, and that he had never left her. She will confess, too, that I don't understand your ways, God, but I choose instead to trust you completely with my life. And Rebecca, to get free, will repeat that over and over. When she had that reaction, it had been 20 years since her daddy passed away. Seeing my shadows and trauma as God sees them changes everything in my life. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul dealt with the adversity and traumas in his life as example of how we can do with our own. And I will admit that this is what I would call advanced. But if you can get this revelation, oh, it will change your life dramatically, especially if you deal with rejection and abandonment issues. He says it this way. He's in prison. This is how he dealt with being in prison. He's imprisoned. He's done nothing except proclaim Jesus and people being free what millions of people do around the world. That's all he did. That's what he's guilty of. He says this. He writes this letter from jail to his church family. He says in Philippians 1, 12 through 14, he says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, I want you, his first sentence was, I need you to do a GoFundMe campaign. I'm not anti-GoFundMe campaigns. I need you to get me a good lawyer. I need you to set up the best defense fund possible. I need you to go out and protest and petition immediately out here and let the governor know that I need to be set free. He didn't do that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I just want you to hear his heart. He says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. I said, I want you to know, I'm in here, but my being in here and being imprisoned under bad circumstances is helping the gospel be spread. It's encouraging you. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in change because of Christ. So everyone here knows why I'm here. And they're listening to me. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. He says, I may be in prison and I may have been scourged on my back. When I get out, I may have a death sentence on me, but I want to tell you, it is for your good, and because of that, I rejoice in God's plan. I rejoice in his sovereignty. I rejoice that he's got purpose in my life, and this is part of his purpose. And for that, I would just say that we need to choose. This is really important. Choose to look for God's goodness in everything. Choose to look for God's goodness in everything. It's tough to do if you have built years and years of a pattern of looking for the worst, expecting the worst, having my old motto, if I believe the worst, I'll never be disappointed. If you're doing that, this is going to take some work. Your brain has developed a pattern of thinking a certain way. You're going against, you are fighting amygdala. And you need to put prefrontal cortex in action. You gotta let, you lean into your weakness and let God be your strength. 
Paul said it this way. He said, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed. I'm just paraphrasing 2 Corinthians 4. I, I'm hard-pressed. I'm perplexed. I'm persecuted. I'm struck down. My life is at risk. There's a death sentence out on for, for me. There's a contract on my life. And, and I like the way Eugene Peterson phrases 2 Corinthians 4.12. Listen to these words about, from Paul about being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and held for death. He said, what they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Do you hear the, them thinking? Like, yeah, I'm suffering. We're suffering. But it's no different than what they did to Jesus. And because he lives in me, I'm, I'm, I'm one with him. Like, I'm... It worked, death worked in him so that life can be worked in you. And so the same is true. Death works in me so that life can be worked in you. Peterson goes on to say, our lives are at constant risk for, for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. In other words, that his life is being worked in me because my cortex is responding with God's truth. And say, God, I know that you're in this with purpose, that you have design here and I'm thankful and I know that it may not go well in this life but I will be supremely happy in the next and he says while we're going through the worst Paul says you're getting in on the best that's Eugene Peterson paraphrase by the way and it's just another way of saying so death works in us but life is at work in you agape love will flow from us only when the goodness of God dominates our thinking that's, that's the fruit that God looks for. Love the Lord your God, all heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said that's agape love, God's sacrificial love. It will not flow through if we stay stuck. It can't get through. That's why this is so hard in the church. That's why it's not contagious because we're, we're, we're stuck at this impasse and God says, I, I want to pour my love through you, but I need you to change your thoughts about me and, and your circumstances and how you frame them. Copy love will flow only through us when we let the goodness of God dominate our thinking. And that's tough to do when you've been rejected by a parent, lost as a child, giving up for adoption, widening why you weren't worthy enough, lost custody of your kids, betrayed by a spouse, cut off by a friend, violated by a family member. You become instead, as God works in you, the vessel of comfort for somebody else. That's one observation I have there. Many of you in here watching online that you're listening to this in a podcast and you're, you're in your life and you're, you're just wondering if you've got any use left. You've been badly damaged, horribly. People don't even know. Things you've never shared with anyone. There's a deep, dark part of your life and you just suppress them and you've minimized them, but they're still there and those shadows hang over you. And you've acted out on them and it's caused a stronghold, a lie got in there. But if you would just realize that, that being free in that area, even just a little bit, will open you up to being a comfort and a help to somebody else who has the same story you have. And the most effective ministers are those with shadows and strongholds who have gotten free enough 
to take somebody by the arm and take them by the hand and walk them out where they're at and be a comfort and joy, and they could not have done it if God had not allowed. It's a broken world, guys. God is not out there looking to do damage, and I know we get that picture. It's just the way the world is horrifically broken, and the further we come apart from God, the worse it gets. You have to make a daily declaration. I want to give you the declaration. It's right out of Scripture. You've probably heard the Scripture, but never really thought it through like I didn't. Psalm 118, 24. You know it. This is the day that the Lord has made. I think we have to stop right there. Did he really make every day the Lord's day? How about the day that are bad days? The day you were told over and over again by your mother that you were ugly the day mom died, the day you got those test results, that it include the day they left you as an orphan, that it include that day too? Is today really the day, or is it just certain days? Is it only the days you've deemed good, or is, is today the day that the Lord has made? He says, if it is, every single day, if it is every day, this is the day he made. He's not validating what happened to you. He's not validating evil. He's not saying this is good that this happened to you. He wished that it weren't. And one day, believe me, you will be fully restored and this will be behind you. He said, this is the day the Lord hath made and here's the best part. Why and how will we respond? We will rejoice and be glad in it. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What? The day he has made every day. That is so much a part. Positive thinking is not enough. Cute little Christian memes are not enough. Successory on your walls and great statements are not enough. We need to take in God's truth and cake it into us through the mind and let it settle in the heart and become part of us until that truth is worked out in us. God's truth holds power. It is powerful. It's not just some empty words that you would see on a wall hanging or on your calendar. It's not some words spoken just glibly through some positive thinking guru that's promising to change your life and your future and make you rich. It is far more than that. It's got greater purpose. It's to transform you. By the new renewing of your mind, the transformation of the heart worked out through us in our behavior. Now I want to just come to this. A lot of people come to church. They, they find church because it's, they believe it to be a safe place. And they come because they're dealing with rejection and abandonment, like our friend Rebecca. They believe they come here and people will be nicer here, and generally it's true. But there's a higher expectation when they come in here. And so when you have a higher expectation, you're disappointed more deeply. So many of you have a church experience. Those at home, you're having a church experience where things didn't go so well. You, you rubbed up against, you know, one of the negative things in church life, and that's people. People are people. They're broken. They do things. They say things. And imperfect people. You guys like Little Orphan Annie? She's one of, I don't know, kind of love that story. I don't even know why. Don't really like musicals, but 
I seem to like that one. There's a lot of hope, but I'm just thinking about, I was thinking about this yesterday about Little Orphan Annie. That in a real life story, uh, those that don't know the story, um, Little Orphan Annie's a, an orphan, right? Okay. So she's, she's in this, during the Great Depression, she's in a, an orphanage under the, the hand of Mrs., the mean Mrs. Hannigan who has them, the girls doing nothing all day but scrubbing floors and taking mold off walls, and it's a horrible place. And They work night and day, working in the kitchen, peeling potatoes. And One day, and she gets the uh, eye of, of somebody, Grace Farrell, who works for Oliver Warbucks, and he's a, he's a rich guy. We'll call him a billionaire. And he, he wants to improve his image. So Daddy Warbucks... Oliver Warbucks uh, decides that he would borrow one of the orphans for a week, for seven days, and then he'd give her back to improve his public image. And so he took uh, Annie into the house, and she walks in, and she'd never seen anything like it. And she's looking at the spiral staircases and the beautiful floral arrangements and the spotless floor, and, and she is just astounded by all of it. And Grace asked her, well, Annie, what would you like to do first? And Annie, naturally from her past, says, well, I think what I'll do is I'll do the windows first, then the floors. That way, if I drip, and Grace Farrell stops her and says, Annie, you don't understand. You don't, we don't want you to do cleaning while you're with us. You're our guest. It's in a real world that's a real reaction. I'm not worthy to be a guest at your house. I'm not worthy to do anything but to be your scullery maid. And at that moment, a big smile crosses Annie's face as maids and butlers and curtsy in her presence, and they pick out her clothes and they draw her bath, and another one turns down her bed. It's a dream come true beyond what she could ever imagine. And she just says, I, I think I'm going to like it here. So, brethren, I want to say this to you. I know in a real life, Annie would have felt unworthy for a long time. In real life, she would have probably considered rejecting Oliver Warbucks before he rejected her. She would have felt unworthy and worked to pay him back in some way. Maybe in later life, she would have founded a charity to help poor orphans as a recompense for the good life that she had. She may have led a campaign to occupy Wall Street to take down the rich old Daddy Warbucks. It's very difficult for Annie to receive love. It's probably very difficult for you to receive love. So with that, I just want to say that a lot of, there's a lot of Annies out there. A lot of Annies that make you feel emotionally and relationally inept. A lot of it's rooted in your abandonment and rejection, and I just want to run down a quick list of symptoms, and this is your diagnosis. This not comes from me. It comes from psychologists, and it manifests its way in different ways. Rejection is reluctant to put itself out there. A lot of rejection prefers just to be invisible. It says, I don't deserve that. It, says, it refuses to take risks. It plays it safe. Rejection on the other side of the coin could be highly competitive and says, I cannot ever risk not being good again or good enough. And so it becomes highly competitive. It's agitated when it doesn't win. It's a high achiever. And once it gets to the top, it quits because it gets insecure and feels like it's going to fail.
Rejection becomes somebody it isn't in order to be accepted. Rejection often rejects others before it gets rejected. Any of this ringing with you? Rejection constantly asks itself, do they like me? Am I acceptable? Rejection seeks to fit in at all costs, even at compromise. Rejection hates being left out, the party invitation. Rejection reads into things. A, you look good today, is heard as, I look good only today? Did I not look good before? It's really true, that happens. Rejection often doesn't like being corrected. It doesn't even like constructive advice because it tells it you're a, a failure. I think a lot of people suffer with that. I know an employee, she had great talent and potential, but she was hypersensitive. She, every employment review was met with a rebuttal and a long written letter on why it wasn't true. And all her employees started to distance, her fellow colleagues started to distance themselves from her because she was so sensitive and anything triggered her sensitivity. Do you know someone like that? And so she had great skills and great talent and great intellect and she would have been a great leader in the company and they wanted to promote her, but instead at the next time of layoff, she was one of the first on the list to go. She had an abandonment, old father wound. Rejection often starves for love, even though much love is given it. Rejection blames God. Why did he give me this nose, these ears? Rejection holds on to pride. It says, how dare they reject me? It's passive aggressive. I see that a lot in road rage. Have you ever honked your horn at somebody? You know, you're at the light. It's one of those green turn arrows that you know is like so quick. And, and you know that if they don't go, you don't go. And... And so you're like debating and you just like you hit the horn and you do it as gently as you can. Like, do, 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 you know, one of those like little, uh, 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 and you just do it like, but that person up there didn't hear what they heard was you're no good. You failed again. Nobody tells me that. Nobody tells me that. They're not talking to you. They're talking to their dad or whoever. Rejection is feeling worthlessness, incompetence, and not belonging. Rejection medicates its feelings often. A lot of you know about medication. Know what it's like to medicate a feeling. How's that working? It will not work. It's not the way you were designed. And you medicate and you go to false medications and false sources for your health because the Lord is not enough for you yet. You've got to make him your source. That's where the work comes in. When you want to medicate however your form of medication is, there has to be a truth that is triggered. It says, God, I trust you. I, I, don't, I hate these feelings and I'm going crazy right now and I can't stand how I've been treated and I don't like what just happened in my life again. But God, I trust you with everything I've got because you are trustworthy. I hand you off all this sense that I have of being rejected again, of being nothing, of being a failure, and it's, it's yours because I know you're with me. I know that nothing will ever separate me from your love. 
your ways are beyond understanding, and so I don't understand them, but I want you. Eventually, when you do that, you will become to know the source of all. You will understand what Jesus meant at the woman that he met at the well. When he looked at her, he says, if you drink, drink from this well, you'll be thirsty again, I'm paraphrasing, but you give, if, I, if you take the living water that I give for you, you will never thirst again. You will, you will never have another longing again like the one you have right now. The one that's caused you to go through relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, looking for something to fill the void, and you don't, and it's not being filled. Because he has designed you to fill you, the source of everything. When Jerry Maguire looked at her and says, You complete me, he was wrong. Ain't no guy, no woman ever going to complete you. Some of you, like a big amen from some people. I know that. <laughs> Your new truth is built on this. Romans 8, love what it says. Don't, it's not going to be on the board. Just listen. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. Who will condemn us? No one. And I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Who I am as a person is decided by God, not by other people. He says this in Ephesians, And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. You are his own. We do not appreciate that fully here, but one day you will be amazed to be his own. God's love is what completes me, not the acceptance of others. He says this and also the letter to Ephesians says, may you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete. When you understand him going to the source, by the way, next week, that's all we're dealing with. It's, of all this in the series, I'm going to put it up there. So far, it will be the most important for us. We got a brethren, we got to take our thoughts captive. We've got to see God's goodness in everything. Every day is the day that the Lord had made, no matter what. We're going to choose God as my source of acceptance in everything that I do. Jesus knows everything that there is about rejection. So let me just give you the plain truth. Your relationship with him is not based on you, your failures, your goodness, your past. You cannot be good enough for God. He's perfect. We are not. Every lie that you told, every little bit of cheating and stealing, all that hatred you welled up inside, he calls it murder, all of that is an affront to God. It, it opposes him. And therefore, we can't have fellowship with him, but God changed that. And he sent his son, Jesus, into the world who lived a perfect life, and he came and he took your sin upon himself on that cross so that you could be set free and forgiven. All those songs we sang, that you will be free. That he has bought you, he ransomed you, he has you, you are in his hands. You belong to God. He identifies you. You are his. You are not what people have told you you are. You are what he says you are. You don't choose your identity. He chose it for you. You're a new creation. 
You just haven't fully realized it yet. I haven't. We're in work in progress there. So God would say to you, he said, listen, I, I want to reconcile and give you and pour my love into you. And the way to do that is to believe that Jesus is God. To believe that he came and that he took your place on that cross. And with that, he bought your life because you are now covered over in righteousness, goodness, and you will stand before him clean and pure, not the way that you've been identified up till this time. And he's going to forgive it all. And you'll be there by grace because you'll put your faith in him alone. It's by grace alone through faith that you have been saved, rescued from this life. And I'm going to encourage you and invite you to let him do that in your life, to give yourself over to him and to be set free, that you will be restored as God had wanted you to be. Originally, in your original state, he has a plan for your life. And it's far bigger than you can ever imagine. And he's got joy and peace and exhilaration waiting for you that he is dying to give you and to hand to you.